0: Before we begin, I have an announcement. Uh, Vinnie Reem met with the session uh, and as a as a baptized member of the church but profess faith to the elders and will be coming into communicant membership through profession of faith at a later date. Now grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Hymn 57 or Psalm 57, excuse me. Verses 7 through 9, or 9 through 11. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Let us remain standing and sing together hymn number 421, the first tune. Please be seated. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, we are thankful again to be in this place and for the hour of worship. We recognize, gracious Father, that uh, there is no life, there is no hope, there is no grace apart from your saving work in our lives. Dear Lord, we recognize uh, that we are empty as far as works go. We are poverty stricken in your sight. We are wicked as far as our sin goes. Lord, it is difficult to imagine how any man could have communion with God given the dilemma of sin. And that is a dilemma and a thought which has not uh, escaped us all these years we've been Christians. Those of us who have been a Christian for a long time. We are still amazed to think that you would ever wish to commune with a sinner by grace, giving us what we do not deserve, richly blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. How is it that a sinner could ever come to know you as his blessedness and his reward and as his redeemer? And how is it that you, the son of God, could call sinners your friends? We are happy to be your servants. And yet you would elevate us to the place of friends and even brothers Gracious Savior, uh, we find in you a fullness of blessing uh, that we can hardly comprehend, but which we adore and which we are trying little by little to comprehend more and more. Give us a greater and a fuller view of yourself, which is to say, give us a greater faith, as we hope to see in the morning sermon. We wish to be those who are marked by faith, men and women of faith, like the fathers and the mothers who went before us. We recognize that trials. Stand before us. We recognize that hardships are not only bound to come. But have already come. And we also recognize that the church has entered into a period of testing. And we know some churches uh, are faring far worse than ours. Uh, and maybe for the good. Although maybe for the bad. Lord uh, this particular trial is a difficult one. And it is, isn't easy for us uh, to know how to face it as Christian people. But we do know that you are testing us. And that you are looking for repentance and you are looking for faith and love and hope, all to be brought to a higher exercise. Uh, not, as we will see in the evening sermon, for trials to be that which stamp out grace, but trials to be that which bring grace into uh, their highest and, uh, and most lively exercise. Uh, Holy Spirit, as you are the author of every grace in us, faith, hope, love, and so forth. We ask you to be present with your church and just as you are trying and you are testing us so you would produce in us every kind of good work and the fullness of the fruit of the spirit. We confess uh, how great our need is of you, just as our need is of the Savior and of the Father. Gracious uh, triune God, we look to you in your triune fullness and we confess and adore and recognize your holiness, your purity, your love, your grace, your wrath. We adore every attribute which you possess, and we thank you that we find all of them expressed perfectly, not only in Scripture, but also in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and most especially on the cross. And so, Lord Jesus, as you stand in heaven now before us and before God as our great high priest and redeemer and intercessor, we ask you. Uh, to do what you only wish to do, and that is to continue your work. We ask you to come quickly again in judgment and in glory and bringing the fullness of salvation to your church. We ask you to keep on assisting us, giving us grace to help in time of need, granting us a greater faith which overcomes and triumphs, uh, giving to us a greater devotion not only to your person but to the holiness of your person and to following you all the days of our life in holiness, forsaking the world and and sin all manner of sin father we ask you by your holy spirit that you would bind and knit the church together as one and even as our witness increases as we pray that it would that we would gather more into our midst uh, in, in a day in an age where they say crowding is the problem well lord let it be a greater problem here we pray that you would bring more and more people into our midst and we pray that our light would shine brightly in this town we ask you that uh, that where there is sin, we might as a church listen to you, that we might be obedient to the Holy Spirit and to Christ in his word and to turn from sin where there is sin, and to rise up in faith every time you call us to believe. Let us be good soldiers and disciples of Jesus Christ. In all of these things, O Lord, we confess our absolute dependence upon you for your mercy and for your grace, for your life to animate our own, and especially that of the church. How fragile our fellowship and our life is, how easily it might be lost by the slightest of trials or or the indiscretion of the minister or one of the elders. God, it all seems so fragile, and yet it is so potent and powerful at the same time. And so, Father, we ask you that we would have a proper appreciation for all the things that we are about to do And that we might indeed meet with the living God. Something, as I recently said, which is never safe, but always beneficial. And then, O God, as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the scripture reading comes to us from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter four. We have brief sketches of uh, these two lives, Abel and Enoch. I'm not certain that if we were to outline the great characters of faith in the Old Testament that we would begin here. They're so briefly told, and yet we find them being told uh, as the first two instances of faith in Hebrews 11. And so let us give attention to what is said there. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again this time his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And then of Enoch it is said, even even more briefly, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Now this is brief, but it is very striking. Enoch lived 65 years and, and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with uh, God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch... We're 365 years and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And in response to God's word, let us stand together and sing the doxology.
1: From whom...
0: Be seated. Would you please turn with me to the back of your hymnal, page 643, Uh, and we will look at Psalter Selection 48, Psalm 97 and 98. And read along with me in the bold. The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlighten the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images. They boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Zion heard and was glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted far above all gods. Ye that love the Lord hate evil, he preserveth the soul of his saints, he delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright of heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. O oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward, those, toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All the earth make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise, sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. with trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the king, let the sea roar in the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth with righteousness, shall he judge the world and the people with equity. Now we have a baptism uh, at this time. I would invite the picks to join me along with Elder Reem. Now would be a time uh, to remind the congregation that uh, of a few things in terms of uh, what we're doing here. Um, we're a Presbyterian church. We, we, we have Presbyterian practices. One of the things that I try to stress in the new members class. One of those practices is, uh, is, is uh, paedo- <laughs> excuse me baptism, not paedocommunion communion uh, So I'm glad I caught that. But we do have weekly communion, so I was thinking of that as well. So praise God for that. And uh, we're, we're trying to get this all right, but uh, this is this is a distinctly, uh, uh, one of our distinctives, you might say, a practice which we hold to. And I think it's especially fitting that we would bring it out right now. Uh, but let, before I say why th- that is the case, I actually want to say something first, something I was reminded of recently, actually in, in reading Ryle's commentaries to my children, That a, a child is a member of the church, not through baptism, but by virtue of his birth into a covenant family. And so he he belongs now to the covenant because he's the child of believers. And there's a more formal bringing in through baptism. But it is by virtue, not of baptism, but by birth to Christian parents that he belongs now to the church, which we recognize through baptism. But the second thing, which I find to be the most powerful argument of all, why it is we baptize our children and I recognize uh, even in this congregation, there is some disagreement about that, and we don't want to make that a point of division, but I do want to state with a clear conscience that I do uh, adhere to my vows as a minister in, in believing this as well, a minister of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We are to have a faith like Father Abraham's. We are not only justified by him, but we are brought into the same covenant. And while that covenant sign... I'll just put the book down and stop pointing it at you. The, the covenant sign has changed from circumcision... To baptism, uh, nonetheless, the sign is to belong to our children in the same way it belonged to his children. Was Abraham justified by circumcision? Read Romans 4. Clearly not. Uh, and, and no more would we say that this child or his parents are justified through baptism. But we would claim that as we have a faith like Abraham, so we believe the sign belongs to our children. And we find many confirmations of this in the New Covenant. We find Jesus, time and again, this is the part of Ryle I was reading to my children, Uh, Let the little children come to me. Jesus is assigning a place in the covenant in the kingdom of God to children, and he's even pointing to them as a model of faith. Uh, And and, and equally, we find that households were baptized. Entire households were baptized in the book of Acts. Very strange if none of those instances included uh, children as here. So uh, that is our argument. It it is it is something we, we do believe uh, we do not believe, let me state again, that this is his justification, this is his salvation. One only gets into Christ like Father Abraham did, by faith. And may he one day, we are saying to God together, may he one day, if not now, begin to share in the faith of his own father and his own mother, uh, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with those things said, the vows are not to him but to his parents. And may one day he... Along with, uh, with others profess faith, uh, before us all in this church. And so I ask you, Jason and Megan, give me one moment. That's of those receiving, there it is, the parents. I was, I was at the wrong page, those who are baptized as adults. But here now to the parents, I ask you both, Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? Do you promise to teach diligently to Joseph the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of the church? Do you promise to pray regular, regularly with and for Joseph and to set an example of piety and godliness before him? We do. And do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and, the, and to fulfill the obligations of the covenant? We do. All right, well, let me pray and then uh, and then I'll baptize him. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gifts and the life of the new covenant, which we share together in this church. And uh, we praise you for the presence of so many children. And like Father Abraham before us, uh, we, we do not seek to save our children through the covenant sign, but we do seek to recognize their place as children of believers in the covenant, looking for you one day to bring about uh, faith in their lives, which they would profess before the church. So in obedience to you, we ask you as we do this uh, to, to bless this sign and to work In his life, even now, a Holy Spirit bringing him to a point of faith and even of assurance. And may his baptism one day play a part in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Joseph Daniel picked, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray again. Father, we thank you now, having done this sign for this child, uh, another gift uh, which you have uh, woven together in his mother's womb. Uh, May he be an instrument one day of your glory and of encouragement even to the church and his parents. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, you might find this funny, but I do believe in pouring, not sprinkling when I baptize. In preparation for God's word, let us stand together and sing a hymn of preparation, hymn number 423. Please be seated. Please turn with me now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses, um, verses 4 through 6, though I'd like to read verses 1 through 6 just to connect it all together. And you might even say this is something of a second introductory sermon to uh, the chapter which we are considering together. And through it, he being dead still speaks by faith. Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him for before he was taken. He had this testimony that he pleased God, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you are still a Holy Spirit speaking to the church today, even as you spoke in various uh, days and and spoke finally through the Son. So you continue to speak through your word and through your preachers. Father, we recognize this is a holy thing and it is a solemn thing. We pray that you would give grace to the preaching and give grace to the hearing that we together might be built up and edified. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. As I said, this is something of a a second introductory sermon. Uh, We're still introducing the idea of faith, and we are uh, beginning to see it in notable examples. The chapter begins, as we saw last time, with the definition of faith. Here, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we see from the outset that faith deals with that which is unseen, That which is out of reach uh, by our human hands in this world, but no less certain. Faith, uh, to use another translation, is the assurance of things hoped for, the the conviction of things not seen. Things which are unseen, but no less certain, because faith comes to understand all things by the word of God. Verse 3. And so faith, hope, and assurance, we discover, and we ought to have discovered by now if you've been following the argument of the epistle closely, are in reality closely related ideas in the thought world of Hebrews and the thought world, really, of the New Testament. Faith, hope, and assurance are in many ways synonymous. And the better a grasp we have on the ideas of hope and assurance as they're presented here, the better we will grasp what it is to have faith. And that is something that stands out not only throughout the book of Hebrews, but Again, especially here in this definition, it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is, in essence, a Christian hope and a certain one. He tells us this, having just stressed at the end of chapter 10 that there is need for endurance, verse 36. And equally that the just man lives by faith, verse 38, quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So, as Calvin says, he connects faith in particular with patience. In telling the church there is need for patience and there is need for endurance in the face of trials. He tells us there is need for faith in order to show what it is that faith obtains. Faith obtains an interest in that which is promised, that which is coming to us in a short while. Supposing we hold on by faith, faith. Verse 37, for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Verse 39, leading up uh, to chapter 11, verse 1. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. He is presenting the Christian life as a pilgrimage and as a journey. And he's saying that we as Christians have great promises uh, which await us and to which we are journeying. Most of all, the, the Sabbath rest, which awaits the people of God entering into the heavenly Jerusalem. And we are journeying on uh, to that. We are not of those, he says, who turn back. That is, in essence, what unbelief is. It is a turning back. In fact, it's, it's even worse. That's apostasy. But we are of those who press on and who seek to obtain the glories of heaven in Christ. And so that is the context here that leads to this lengthy discussion on faith. Faith, as Calvin says, regards not present things, but such as are waited for. That is the emphasis for meant to see, and it is the particular aspect of faith that's being emphasized here for us, the faith of the pilgrim and seeing the Christian life as a pilgrimage. We have not yet obtained what we seek, but we are very near and we are very close. If only we endure for a little while longer. And since we're dealing with definitions here, I thought I might give the Westminster Confessions definition of what faith is in chapter 14 of the Confession, section 2, Which is, I think, a very useful definition given what we are considering here. Not only in chapter 11, but throughout the book of Hebrews. This is what it says. And we might notice two things here. And then there's actually a second part of the definition, which we'll consider in a moment. But the first part of the definition is this. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God. For the authority of God himself speaking therein. And acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth yielding obedience to the commands trembling at the threatenings embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come as i read that i was struck with what a fitting uh, description as i say of the, the faith which we find in the book of hebrews and commended to believers faith is first of all it says that which rests solely in the word of god and that whatever we believe to be true we do so based upon what we find there what god is saying in his word By faith, the Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God. That's the starting point. God is speaking. Are we listening? You may remember that is the the emphasis of the early chapters of the book of Hebrews, chapters one through four. Furthermore, we notice that as God speaks. That faith is disposed and directed by that word, however, it may come to us. And so as we find uh, in just the next verse, as I hope to look at next time, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet, moved with godly fear, prepared the ark. In the face of a warning or threatening, God was about to drown the world in judgment. He was moved with godly fear. He was disposed and directed by that word. He trembled at the threatenings, you might say, to use the language of the confession. but at the same time, he obeyed the commandments, and he believed the promises. This is something I think this idea of faith, not only that we believe the word as it comes to us, but we are disposed by that word by however it comes to us. Disposed and directed has been present throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews has been a very rich presentation of the promises which are set before us, which is the stuff of faith. But you might have also noticed something that is perhaps uh, a little surprising and perhaps even distressing to the believer, that the book of Hebrews is also full of terrible threatenings and warnings which make the believer tremble. And I'm saying that's right. I'm saying that is the disposition of faith, because that is the direction the word of God would lead us. When it thunders forth its threatenings with Noah, we are moved with godly fear by faith. And only by faith are we able to respond to both appropriately. We don't give in to despair in our tremblings because we are also moved equally by the promises to lay hold of the promises to repent and believe and to be assured of our salvation. And so faith, I would say, is a disposition of the heart and life, which is directed whichever the way the word may lead us, whether to fear or uh, belief in the promises or to obedience but here's the second part of that uh, that confessional statement, and this is the more common definition of faith. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. There again, I think we could see a very fitting definition of faith as we find it in the book of Hebrews. This is very similar to what we find in the Shorter Catechism question and answer uh, or, or just the answer uh, for uh, uh, number 86 when it says faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. And certainly I think that's what we could say here about the book of Hebrews. That Christ is being presented to us and he is being offered to us as the object of faith. And faith then is not only our receiving and accepting him, but our resting in him as our salvation. Resting in him alone. That is really in fact all the book of Hebrews would have us to do. And so the book is in a sense... Or in essence, really, a wellspring of faith. The author, in presenting the fullness of Christ to us in his priesthood, is seeking, as he has stated many times, to instill strong faith in us. Faith which draws near in a full assurance. Faith which overcomes and endures. Faith which does not fall back and perish, but which holds fast to the promises to the very end. To put it as simply as I can, faith here is seen... As the simple act of heeding the call. Forsake yourself and follow me. And the man who does that has faith. So long as we are really following him. Not for a day. Not for a moment. But for the whole of our lives. All the way where he would lead us. Even into heaven itself. Another definition I like. Is that of Al Martin. He says faith is the desperate thrust of the dying soul. Into the arms of a faithful savior. Faith is our getting into Christ. It is our receiving and resting upon him as our salvation and not ourselves. Equally here, I am reminded of the story of Dabney at the end of his life when he confessed that his faith was failing him. And to this, his friend told him, now, dear old friend, I have done to you just what I would want you to do to me if I were lying in your place. The great theologian, after all, is just like any other one of God's children. And the simple gospel talk to him is just as essential to his comfort as to a milkmaid or a plowboy, May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ and all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. There again is the emphasis which we have seen, especially in the book of Hebrews, that faith, uh, by faith we are beholding Jesus Christ. We are seeing him. But I would also add with the Puritans uh, that unlike the demons... We not only behold him and confess him as savior, they recognized he was the son of God, but we delight in him as our savior. Faith is our receiving and resting in him as our salvation. We delight to be saved by him. We delight to come to terms of peace with God by him and in no other way. And so the more we get a view of him, the more faith we will have. And since that is all we've been doing thus far in Hebrews, it is very fitting now that faith should, faith should become the emphasis in chapter 11, seeing that Christ and all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge, to use Vaughn's language to Dabney, have so plainly and fully been set before us. All that is left for us to do is to have faith and to be sure that we know what it means to have faith. And so let us be clear about our definitions Let us see what true faith is and what it consists of before we seek to see it in the fathers. Now, as we begin to look at these men, I want first to highlight this one thing that appears immediately about them all. And that is their antiquity. As you look at the chapter, as it presents the way of faith, the life of faith, the example of faith. We are we are struck by how ancient this uh this way is. What we discover is that faith as a way of salvation and justification goes all the way back to the old world before the flood. When he points to the first triplet of examples, and I had hoped to to preach them together but I couldn't quite make Noah fit in uh and I, I and uh you may find that uh, I should have left off at Abel even but uh we'll see how this goes. Uh, Really, he presents to us an opening triplet, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And what he's doing is he's making us think of the old pre-world or pre-flood world. He is taking us even before Abraham, who is typically seen as the starting point of faith and making us realize that even back in the old world, faith was the only way by which a sinner was justified in the sight of God. It was the only way that he obtained a good testimony and was accepted as righteous in the sight of God. Which which is what we see in verses 4 and 5. He obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. Enoch obtained the testimony that he pleased God. How did they do so? By faith. To point this out. The antiquity of faith. As I've said many times. Is the common practice of the New Testament. In commending faith to us. It points most commonly. Not to recent examples. But to ancient ones. And so, for instance, Jesus, in rebuking the Pharisees in John chapter 8, told them that if they were Abraham's true true children, they would have shared Abraham's faith in him. In other words, it wasn't enough simply to be descended from Abraham, the, the child according to the flesh, in order to be considered by God, the child of Abraham, the true spiritual seed. You must share in his faith and only then are you his true child. His point is the same point that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. He is pointing to faith as the ancient path, the ancient way. He is telling us that ever since man fell into sin, that faith has been at a premium, not works, since man is devoid of good works in the eyes of God. And so what matters, he says to the Jews, is not who your parents were by birth, but whether you have faith. Equally, as we saw last time, the Apostle Paul points to the way of salvation, which Abraham and David found, not by works, but solely by faith. Again, Romans chapter 4. You find similar arguments in Galatians chapter 3 and many other places. Something that has been uh, the emphasis of the Genesis and Exodus sermons. We do not find there men who found righteousness through works of the law, but rather men who found righteousness by faith. They obtained a testimony by God that they were righteous because they were believers like us. And so we need at the outset here to understand the antiquity of faith. We need to not fall into the common error that faith is something that belongs to the new covenant. To that I say, no, it belongs to the whole of the covenant of grace, which includes even the old covenant. And which even predates the old covenant, since the old covenant, in fact, began with Moses and what predated the old covenant was the covenant God made with Abraham, even the covenant of grace. What we are amazed to see here is that it predated even Abraham and reached back into the old world. We almost cannot understand the point of the chapter until we see this. That God has always, ever since the fall of Adam, dealt with the sinner on the basis of faith. And that verse 6, uh, verse six, without faith it is impossible to please him, is something that has always been true. Something which the history that is told here makes abundantly plain. We are considering what is in essence a brief history of the world. Going back to the creation, Adam is excluded because he was under a covenant of works. But once he fell and and a covenant of grace came in. There was only one way of salvation for him and for his children. Namely the way of faith. It was a covenant of grace. Which is why we begin with one of his sons, Abel, the godly son. And what we need to see about them. Is that they were saved in no other way than we. Which is to say, not merely by faith. But more particularly by faith in the son of God, by faith in the gospel, by faith in Jesus as our great high priest. Do you realize that has also been part of the argument in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest by shedding his blood is not only to pardon our sins, but to pardon every transgression that has ever been committed by the elect in every age. The blood of bulls and goats was never able to take away their sins, though they were under that administration. They too, like we, could only be saved by him. Chapter 9, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Even those who were under that administration were still saved by him if they had faith. And what it meant for them to have faith was. A faith in him. If only seen in shadowy form in the types and the shadows and the promises. The blood of Jesus was just as effective in removing their sins as ours. And so we must see that as He was their Savior in the same way that He is ours, so faith occupied the same central place in their salvation as it does for us. It was for them as for Dabney, only an eye to see Him, the Savior, though at a distance, and to find in Him an eternal salvation, Which is why Jesus concludes his discussion with the Pharisees. Telling them what the faith of Abraham consisted of. Abraham saw my day and was glad. Though he was at a distance. Though he lived only in the age of promise not the age of fulfillment. Still his faith consisted in a faith in Jesus. But then seeing the antiquity of faith. Let us consider it as we find it in the father's beginning with Abel. As I said, it's interesting in a way to see that we do not begin with Adam here, but his son and his second son. Though that's not surprising since Cain was devoid of faith. Why not Adam? I think the reason for that is because Adam was under a different arrangement, as I've said, when he was under a covenant of works. I do believe that following his fall into sin, that he too was saved by faith. I believe that we will find Adam in heaven along with his wife. But it would be confusing to make him the father of faith or to include him in the list of believers here. Since he is most noted as our father who fell while under a covenant of works and brought ruin to this world. And the real question becomes, given this fact, what becomes of man? And we immediately discover in the case of his children, which, again, I think is a more effective way to make the point, though I would argue Adam was saved by faith. In the case of his children, it becomes evident that another way of salvation was made manifest, not that of works, but that of faith. And so we should not locate the beginnings of faith or the covenant of grace with Abraham, but with Abel. The story of Abel is remarkable, if only because of what isn't said. It isn't told in order to highlight the faith of Abel. The truth is that in telling the history of Abel, it is his murder and not his faith that is the real emphasis. It is the tragedy of Adam's fall highlighted in the fact that his two of his two sons, one was a murderer and the other was murdered. The tragedy of the fall thus was highlighted in the case of these two men, especially against the backdrop of the fact that God had just promised to Eve that her seed would be the redeemer. And she had no indication of how long that would take. Perhaps it would be Cain. Perhaps it would be Abel. How quickly her hopes were dashed. But as you read chapter 4, you recognize that Abel is not the emphasis, but Cain. So so much so that we don't typically make much of Abel as we read the chapter. But the apostle here does. He finds in Abel a striking instance of faith. He begins his long history of faith with him. He finds in him the first of many remarkable instances of faith in the old world. world, Again, the pre-flood world. And he does so like this. He points to the fact, as we know, that Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. This is, in fact, what led to the dispute between the brothers and to Cain's anger and murder of his brother. But the question which we must have had was, What was it about Abel's sacrifice that was better than Cain's, uh, just as what was it about Cain's sacrifice that led God to reject it, though he accepted his brothers? And the answer is given here with surprising simplicity. It was that Abel offered in faith while Cain did not. It was Abel's faith in God and his piety that led him to offer while Cain offered from impure motives. It is perfectly evident that Cain was a wicked man since he was so easily driven to slay his brother. And so we're not surprised to discover here that he lacked faith as he sacrificed. But the real emphasis here is not what Cain lacked, but what Abel possessed. His faith was the secret principle that led him to this act of devotion seen in his sacrifice, which sprung from a desire to commune with God. Much as we're doing here in worship. All of the outward forms that we assume and partake of arise not from our delight in the things themselves but finding God in them. That is the way of faith and that was the way which Abel had found. And yet we also see, and this is the point which is really to be underlined here, not simply that he had faith but that he suffered for it, that he paid for it. Can I even go so far as to say that Abel was the first martyr for his faith? It was his faith that led to his persecution. He was hated by his brother for the simple reason that God accepted him. And God accepted him because, uh, because of his faith in God and lively devotion. And this is what led to his worldly demise. Here was a man who had faith, though he paid for it in this world. Here was a man whose faith cost him his life. And this was precisely, if you remember, the prospect that was facing this group of readers. Remember uh, this, what he said uh, just at the end of chapter 10. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Knowing you had a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. He was uh, speaking here to a group of readers Who were experiencing or who were beginning to experiencing hardships for their faith. They were experiencing the animosity of the world. Uh, To use modern language they were being cancelled because they were now believers. Cancelled from society and from their families. Uh, They had not yet shed their blood. None of them were martyrs but it was a prospect that was very real and lively in their minds. And it is in light of that that he says I want you to remember the former days and I want you to endure. Don't give up. Do not draw back or shrink back from what you are seeking but press on in faith. And as you do this he says I want you to think of Abel. When you think of what it is to have faith in the face of a hostile world think of him. He gave his sacrifice. He trusted in God though it cost him his life. And in reality the author tells us it really cost him nothing because by his faith he obtained the witness that he was righteous that is before God God testified that he accepted his person as righteous and to this he adds that though he is dead he still speaks the memory of him remains not only in the people of God but in God himself God has not forgotten Abel God has not rejected him but he ever lives to God along with all the saints much as as his blood cried out for vengeance We read in chapter 4 of uh, Genesis, so too his blood cries out, along with the martyrs continually to God as a perpetual plea, one which God will not ignore, Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. And we even read in chapter 12 verse 24 of the book of Hebrews that the blood of Abel still speaks, though thank God the blood of Christ speaks louder, he says. So the point is here, not only the faith which led to his devotion, but as we will find throughout this book, That he gained something even in death, dying in faith. Note in, in Cain, a man who died in faith, just as it says, these all, excuse me, in Abel. Note in Abel, a man who died in faith. All, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That is the testimony, not only of Abraham, but even of Abel himself. And so Abel assures us that whatever a man may lose in this world, even his own life, if he has faith, he will gain far more. But look at Enoch next, another man whose history is briefly told in Genesis. All we know about him from Moses is that he walked with God and he was not for God took him. And that's uh, the, the, the quotation that is given in verse five. Also, that by this, his life was pleasing to God. Well, this testimony speaks of a remarkable man as well as a remarkable end to his life. Here was someone whose life stood out in days of great wickedness, so much so that God made an example of him by bringing him directly into heaven, bypassing death altogether. And here in this single verse, we discover the real essence of what his walk with God consisted of. It was by faith that Enoch walked with God and thus pleased God and was taken away. Now, here's the thing to notice about Enoch. It isn't enough to just say, well, Abel had faith and Enoch had faith and along you go down the lines. You have to ask what it is in particular about his testimony that stands out and is an encouragement to the church. I think we can see at this point what it was about Abel. But don't you see how in the case of Enoch, it's the opposite. That while Abel died for his faith, Enoch was translated directly into heaven for his faith. Enoch presents to the church the other side of things. How it is things might end for those who walk by faith in this life. And how it is that they might come to possess that which they seek as pilgrims and sojourners in this world. Not through death or martyrdom as in the case of Abel and so many others. But rather that we should simply be taken into heaven by God. Bypassing death altogether like Enoch. Do you realize, beloved... That this is a very real prospect which lies before us. One which by faith we are made aware. That it very well may be that instead of dying. We should be brought into heaven by Jesus sudden return. A lively hope which burns brightly in the hearts of believers. At least those whose faith makes it so. By faith I am saying we are made aware of both possibilities. For we know, as he just said at the end of chapter 10, for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. The object of faith, faith rightly understood, is not just that Jesus is coming, but that he is coming very soon. And that I, like Enoch, might be very well caught up in the clouds at his return. His coming is not long delayed. And if by faith we are able to see this, then we must realize that this prospect is equally as likely as the other. Whether by death or by his sudden return, I will soon be with him. I will soon be at the end of my journey. Either we will be like Abel or like Enoch, which we cannot say only that both are likely and that by faith we are keenly aware of both possibilities. And the point is, on the side of Enoch here, you won't be like Enoch You won't be on the right side of the great divide when Christ returns unless you have faith. Chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart for sin for salvation. Those who eagerly wait for him. That is to say, those who have faith, they will find him on that day to be a savior indeed like Enoch. But look here at what is said in verse 6. In many ways, this is one of the most crucial statements of the chapter. It is a statement which is similar to what is found in uh, uh, verse 1 and verse 3, where he tells us about the character of faith and what it is capable of. He says, uh, without faith it is impossible to please God and so forth. But it is not made in isolation. It is something which Enoch himself demonstrated. A principle which occurs to us when we consider uh, his life, which was so pleasing to God. Verse 5 Enoch, uh, how does he put it, he was taken, uh, before he was taken, he obtained this testimony that he pleased God. And having said that, it leads him to state this principle, that without faith it is impossible to please God, like Enoch did. And equally, that is, it is impossible to maintain a close and intimate walk with God. And it is certainly impossible to enjoy the outcome of Enoch's life, to be caught up in the clouds of Christ's return. So the life which is devoid of faith is a life which is devoid of God. Since faith is described like this. First, faith is a belief that he is. Obviously, one cannot draw near to him and keep up a close and intimate walk of communion with God, as Enoch did, unless we believe that he exists. No one will draw near to God, he says, unless he believes that he is. Obviously so. John Owen, the man who does not pray, is an atheist. For he says in his heart, there is no God. So faith rests in God actively and in his son. It accepts and understands this first of all, that God is, that his existence is eternal and unchangeable, that his being is uncreated, unlike the world he has made, and that he is forever the source and fountain of his own being. He is the eternal and self-existent. He is the great I am, as he told Moses. He enjoys a perfect life which cannot be taken from him. All of this is what we mean when we say, I believe that God is. And let me add to this very quickly that this subject is not open for debate. It is not open to dispute. It isn't the kind of thing that we sit around on our armchair and ponder and discuss and debate. You do not debate the existence of God, beloved. That is the posture and the position of unbelief, not of faith. Let the philosophers of this age do that. But for our part, as believers who have faith, we will simply believe and confess what we know to be true, namely that God is, that he exists and he always will, that he is eternal. Second, and very closely associated with the first truth, not only can we not draw near to God unless we believe that he is, but faith involves a belief that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That must equally be included in our definition of faith. It isn't enough, in other words, to accept a generic kind of theism. You must have some kind of interaction with God if you wish to have faith. By faith, we not only understand that God exists, but that there is some benefit in going to him. And that if he should invite us and we should come, he will not turn us away. Think of the gospel here. Faith hears the words come from Jesus' mouth, follow me, and later said, come unto me, you weary, and I will give you rest. And so it comes, and so it delights to come. It is a personal interaction and in exchange with the person of Jesus Christ. It hears the words, and so it comes. And the reason it comes, the reason we do not stand back or shrink back in fear is because by faith, We come to understand that God will accept our persons and he will reward us with every spiritual blessing when we come, when we heed the invitation and come through Christ, our great high priest, the promise of scripture and the testimony of Christians in every age. And let me add my testimony to that is that we are no losers or we stand nothing to lose when we come to God, that when we come to him as he invites us in his son, so we find him to be our blessedness and reward. That we lose nothing but gain everything, even the prospect of heaven itself. Everything that is described here about Jesus in the epistle, we find to be true. We find him to be a great high priest to us. We find the prospect and the promise of heaven to be true. And we begin to long for it. But let me notice in the last place, in this definition of faith, something which is perhaps bolder than ours. For we see a description of reward. A drawing near into the presence of God. Which occurs through a vigorous exercise of the soul. A diligent seeking. We also see that it cannot be otherwise. With the language of necessity here. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, once more, it cannot be otherwise. And I would point out. That we are not considering here the difference between a strong faith and a weak faith. We might be tempted to think that but that isn't true. What he is describing in verse 6 is faith itself. In other words faith seen as faith involves just this. A diligent seeking of God. An earnest desire and a bold approach. A belief that he is and that we will not come to him in vain. But that we will obtain what we seek from him. That is real faith, beloved. And nothing short of this deserves to be called faith at all. And thus we see the truth of Al Martin's statement read, which I read earlier. Faith is no modest exercise of the soul. It is a vigorous and earnest endeavor. It is a desperate thrust of the soul into the arms of a faithful savior. It is, to use the language here, the diligent seeking of the Lord. Have you ever wondered why you lack What you seek by prayer. Can it be that you lack faith? Faith understood as it is presented here as a diligent seeking. As a determined seeking whereby we are assured that we will receive from God the very things we seek. Faith springing from a knowledge that he will reward those who diligently seek him. Listen to what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, do not be surprised that we have so little from God when we seek so little from him. Do you not see that unless we really believe that he will reward us, we will never go to him? We will always stand at a distance. Oh, but if we have faith like this, like the man Enoch, then we will live close to God. We will walk with him and we will find him constantly to be our blessedness and reward. Let us learn what it means to say once more from verse six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Amen. And let us come now to the table. In the words of Luke, now, when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took uh, the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Well, as we go on with our study of Hebrews, uh, it just strikes me every time as I read those words uh, in Luke or Mark or wherever uh, that Christ is set before us in his priesthood and that Christ is is offering himself to us. He is encouraging us to think uh, of ourselves in our relation to him in terms of his priestly sacrifice. But at the same time, what we also find in Hebrews is that just as he's making that clear to his disciples and he is speaking of a personal, intimate communion with himself. He also makes us aware of the, the, uh, the possibility of apostasy, which is something which perhaps you just look o- over as an accident of, of history. Uh, he happened to have an apostate in his midst. Uh, and then you read the book of Hebrews and you realize that the more you behold the priesthood of Jesus Christ, whether at the table or in scripture or in the preaching, the more aware you become of the possibility and the reality of apostasy. And I almost don't know what to do with that. I'm not telling you all to fear lest you become apostate yourselves, except I am. I mean, that is the the challenge of scripture Uh, and it challenges us all and it challenges our faith. Beware lest there be any apostates among you. And indeed, the likelihood is that there is. Uh, And let us see how great indeed is our savior that he should sacrifice himself for any of us. And that in that sacrifice he should keep us safe. Uh, and so all I can say to you is cling more closely to the Savior, uh, and 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 try, uh, try to see as best you can the blessings that he has secured and that he offers for you. Let this be to you a spiritual transaction. Recognize that Christ shed blood is your salvation. Receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation, and then you will be safe. And then you will delight at in every invitation which comes to you and you will begin to really exercise your faith even at the table. But with those words uh, said, let us pray together and then let us come. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the gift of your son. And we are also made aware of the terrible prospect of apostasy, even that an apostate may be among us as he was at the first supper. Father, we ask you that you might by this means we wouldn't ask you to recover the apostate for we would ask you to go against your word there. But we ask you to, at the very least, reclaim the one who is wayward, who feels that he is on the brink of apostasy. Bring him back to yourself. And for the rest, we pray that you would strengthen their faith and give us a more lively hope in our savior. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Beginning now with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, it, and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this bread to you. Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks. As has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name. Give this cup to you. Please remember the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, "This cup is the new covenant in my <clears throat> in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you." Let us close out our worship now by singing uh, together the first tune, hymn four twenty seven.